1: Hello podcast listeners, I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today we're joined by the world-renowned psychologist Robin Dunbar who explains the science of friendship from the different types of friend and family relationships to just how complicated the business of making and keeping friends can actually be. It's a particularly pertinent episode in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and if you do enjoy it and want to dig a bit deeper into the themes discussed you can find a link for Robin Dunbar's excellent new book, Friends, in the episode description. But now I'll hand you over to the host, British oceanographer and physicist, Helen Chersky.
0: Welcome to this Intelligence Squared uh, event this evening. We are going to be talking about friends. How many have we got? How many of we need? How many do we need? And what has not seeing them for a year done to us all? Robin Dunbar is a fantastic person to discuss all of these things with. He is a, an evolutionary psychologist, the former director of the Institute of Cognitive and Evolutionary Anthropology. In the Department of Experimental Psychology at Oxford University, who go in for very long job titles and, and uh, department titles, he's known, of course, for the Dunbar number, uh, which is a, a good approximate number. It's around 150, and um, it's that's about how many friends we can cope with in one of our layers of uh, the one of the layers of our social network. And his books inclu- include "How Many Friends Does One Person Need?" and "Grooming, Gossip, and the Evolution of Language." Which was described by Malcolm Gladwell as a marvellous work of popular science. And his latest book um, is right here for those who are looking at the video. So you can it's you can see it's called Friends Understanding the Power of Our Most Important Relationships. So let's get going. So Robin, of course, we're going to be talking mostly about the book, but it is, in the context of the last year, impossible not to discuss the consequences of COVID on our friendships as we're going along. So I just wanted to start at the beginning. Like, how are you doing? How are your friends over the past year? How has your friendship social, your your social network evolved over the past 12 months?
2: I think it's probably stagnated completely. (laughs) the digital the digital media are actually you know not bad really in terms of actually getting to keep up with people but um at the end of the day there is nothing like being able to stare across the table at, in, in a pub and in, uh, uh, clap somebody around the shoulders <laughs> face-to-face world is, is best there's no doubt about it
0: I'm, I'm sure lots of our audience uh, will agree with you and has your research influenced the way you've dealt with Covid or have you just been muddling along like the rest of us
2: I don't think I've had time to think about it actually <laughs> writing too much <laughs> while, while I, I don't get interrupted <laughs>
0: Fair enough. Well, I guess there's a lesson there. You know, friend, Friends are great, but uh, un- uninterrupted writing time is also very precious. OK, so just to set the scene with a little bit about the big headlines in the book. So we all know that friendships are important intuitively, but you study this. So why is it? Why are friendships so good for us?
2: Well, actually, they're, they're crucial. It's not just good, I think. They're crucial to us for two very different reasons. One is the effect they have on our health and well-being, not just our physical health, but also our mental health, and they have a huge impact. Just to put, sort of put a, a, a number on it, if you like, it's become increasingly clear, I think, over the last decade that the one thing that has m- more effect than anything else your friendly GP wants to throw at you for your psychological health and well-being and your physical health and well-being is simply the number and quality of close friendships you have. It's extraordinary. And in some ways, I guess it's one of those things we've kind of always known about subconsciously, if you like. But uh, nobody's noticed enough to put it into the medical textbooks. So maybe things will change now that we understand this better. But also at the other level, uh, and the reason friendships have evolved and our social networks in general have evolved, is the fact that your friends, in effect, provide you with important services. And probably the most important of those are your kind of inner core of what I always call shoulders to cry on friends. Typically, that would be a couple of close family members and a couple of close friends and perhaps an extra one from either side to make it up. But they're the ones that really seem to matter both for your health and and, and your kind of psychological well-being. But also, they're the ones that will drop everything when your world falls apart and, and, you know, come to your aid, which as you go further out down your social network, you know, into sort of eventually acquaintances and people you vaguely know, they become less and less likely to do that. So, you know, we, we really do depend... And it's not just sort of, you know, when our psychological world falls apart, they give us support, but they're the ones that will kind of step in and, and help us when we when we need something physical done or, you know, loan us some money or, you know, whatever <laughs> it might be that that we need.
0: Well, and your perspective on this comes from studying animals initially, right? So, so how tell us a little bit about that and how easy is it to extend the patterns you see in animals to human behaviour?
2: It's true. I I spent the first half of my research career studying animals, primarily monkeys uh, in Africa and and to a lesser extent antelope in Africa and and feral goats in in Scotland and North Wales, actually. And it's only about sort of halfway through my research career, I I sort of started to uh, think seriously about humans and and, and work on humans. But if you study monkeys in particular, or monkeys and apes, I think it's very easy to kind of feel at home in the sense that these are incredibly sophisticated, socially sophisticated species, as well as very smart species, but their whole world revolves around this very complex social world they live in. I mean, it really is. Field workers often get sort of flagellated by proper scientists for for referring to what they see out there as a soap opera, but in one sense it really is. It's just an everyday kind of soap opera, and, and the rules of the game are very, very similar. And so the importance of close friendships for providing support, um, buffering you against the sort of vagaries of the world are just as important for them as for us. So you see exactly the same effects that females, for example, both in baboons and chimpanzees, who have more friends, the, 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 the individuals they groom a lot with, are healthier they uh, are more fertile their offspring are more likely to survive to adulthood they live longer and these are exactly what we see in humans so it's it's kind of the same ball game it's just that inevitably it's just a bigger ball game and even more complicated I- in humans because you know we can manage a bigger social world basically at the end of the day because we've got a much bigger brain and we can be more sophisticated in how we, if you like, think through our social strategies than, than say, monkeys and apes. But you know, primates in general, including ourselves, are in a different league in terms of uh, their social world. I, I, I hesitate to say this to a physicist, but actually, I think the social world <laughs> is much the most complex thing in the universe. And it's simply because it's so dynamic. I'll, I'll, I'll accept the, the, the internal dynamics of the sun as a close second but it it 's the same sense of chaotic constant motion and uh, and sort of molecules and atoms bumping into each other if you think of of uh, of other individuals as the equivalent it It is a very complex world that these species live in, and of course we live in and and managing that requires very very considerable social skills and cognitive skills
0: well, you mentioned. So, well, I'm sure that physicists, especially cosmologists, are surprisingly happy to admit, actually, what they study isn't complicated compared with protein folding, the human brain and social anything. So I think I don't think anyone's arguing about that. So you mentioned grooming. That's before we get on to the numbers. I just wanted to pick up on the grooming because I think that's the sort of thing we entirely associate with animals. Um, But you do talk about human grooming in the book. So that just as an example, tell us how grooming translates into the human world.
2: OK, so monkeys and apes basically use grooming to create and maintain their friendships with each other. And that, and some of these species spend an inordinate amount of their time engaged in this activity. So nominally, they're leafing through the fur, picking out bits of debris and stuff like that and, uh, uh, and scabs and the like. And so it is for providing a hygienic function. But they spend much much more time than they need to just to do that especially for the social species so some of the most social species can spend up to a fifth of their entire day engaged in this activity it's hugely costly to them what it does is trigger a very specialized set of neurons that are in the hairy skin the receptors sit at the base of the um, hair uh, 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 follicles as it were and it, these these neurons go straight into the brain and trigger the release of endorphins in the brain. Now, endorphins are opiates. They're relate- chemically related to morphine. That's where the name comes from. In, it, it, endorphin is a contraction of endogenous morphine, meaning the brain's own morphine. They're part of the pain control system. But like morphine, and in fact, actually, they're 30 times more powerful as an analgesic weight for weight than morphine is. They're incredible little molecules. Um, But they create that same kind of sense of relaxation and all's well with the world. And I'm at peace here that you get from any of the opiate drugs. The only difference is we don't get addicted to them, uh, at least not physiologically, because the, you know, they're there, the body's adapted to them, if you like. Now, that creates this sort of platform off which they can build meaningful friendships in effect. Now, we use, it turns out, exactly the same behaviour, effectively, all the time in our social interactions, particularly with our very more intimate friends and relations. And we've shown you using PET scanning, where you, you kind of brain scan what's actually happening in somebody's brain at the time, shown that you know when people are being sort of stroked gently on the surface of the abdomen and chest... The brain is just going absolutely wild. Now, there's a very specific movement. These these specialized neurons only respond to stroking at a very specific speed. It's actually about two and a half centimeters a second. If you do it too fast, there's no reaction. If you do it too slow, there's no reaction. It has to be round about two to three centimeters a second, which is exactly the rate at which hand movements brush across the fur, in animals and in which we sort of stroke and uh, and and uh, do things like hug and so on um, and, and all those a lot of those because we don 't have so much hair we 've kind of adapted it to just move the skin because it, this is a mechanical system and it 's the movement of the fur on this in in this embedded in the skin that causes the the response and so we can trigger that by sort of not only uh, stroking people but hugging them and holding them and cuddling and all these other things which we spend so much of our time doing
0: it's quite interesting because, of course, different cultures have very different attitudes towards touching other people, even in pre-COVID times. And there are, you know, there are cultures where it's very normal, and their their concept of personal space is very different. And presumably, do they do they have? I mean, do we know anything about whether they have more friends or better friends because they actually get to stimulate that?
2: No, I th- I think the short answer is. It's an illusion that they don't do very much. <laughs> I mean, I think probably the difference is, I don't know, some cultures are kind of, if you like, more effusive in, in in whom they'll sort of pat on the back and and give a hug to or an air kiss to than others. That's probably fair dues. But if you look at the patterns of where people are allowed to touch each other or be touched by somebody, they are very restricted in terms of the relationship so the closer the relationship the more of the body is permissible to be touched as it were uh, but that pattern of of where the on the body you're allowed to touch people is pretty universal as far as we can see i mean we've we've sampled people from all over europe so the united kingdom to russia east to west and north to south from uh, finland to italy and we've sampled people in Japan as well who are supposedly notoriously non-touchy-feely. And the patterns you see is almost exactly the same. There are a few kind of blips here and there that are kind of peculiar to, to individual cultures. And some are more kind of touchy-feely than others, not surprisingly. You know, the, the Brits are a bit less touchy-feely and the Italians are a bit more. But the winners on all this is the most touchy-feely people in Europe were the Finns of all people who really? <laughs> <laughs> always well, come across as very upright and staid, But, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it has something to do with all this time spent in saunas, probably. <laughs> but there we go. um it,
0: It's interesting to, it's interesting as a sort of how much of what we see matters. So obviously so the next question that follows on from that as a, as a brief detour from what's in the book is, that of course, many people this year have been, you know, they've lived by themselves, so they may literally not have touched another person for a year, or they, you know, or very, very infrequently. What What does that do to you? Is there any evidence on what just not being touched might, in you know, in a friendly sort of all of those connections you were talking about? What happens when you don't have that?
2: I don't think it's very good for you, is the short answer, because one of the reasons or the reason in large part, that you get this health benefit, not just the psychological benefit, but the physiological health benefit, uh, is that endorphins, one of the things they seem to do is kind of tune the immune system. They trigger the release of natural killer cells, NK cells, which are part of the kind of white blood cell complex of the immune system, as it were. And natural killer cells target in particular viruses and also cancer cells. So they, you know, they're going around the body cleaning up the stuff that shouldn't be there, basically. So if you're not getting the endorphin hits, this is kind of probably not a good idea. Fortunately, all is not completely lost because one of the things we've managed to do in the course of our rec- relatively recent evolution is find ways to trigger the endorphin system without physically having to touch somebody. Now, that's a consequence of the fact that grooming type mechanisms of social bonding because they're so time expensive and that's partly because the quality of a relationship depends on the time you invest in it that's true for us and monkeys but for them it's face-to-face stuff and grooming is a one-on-one activity you know it really is for them and for us i always challenge people to prove me wrong by going and um try and cuddling two people in the back row of the cinema at the same time. And I'll, I'll give you six and a half minutes before one of them work, walks out through not having enough attention. Paid.
0: I'm pretty sure I've <laughs> you know, seen it's... my sister c- uh, cuddle six puppies at a time, but it might ah, be a different thing.
2: <laughs> that's that's a, diff- a different thing. But it, it's a very, you know, grooming, it, it, physical touch is a very intimate activity which is why of course we don't like being touched with strangers you know all all cultures in our sample around europe and the japanese will only allow strangers to to touch their hands that's why we handshake with people because it's sort of close enough to say i'm being sort of friendly but distant enough not to be too intimate it's about as far away as you can get
0: and now we've invented a new one which is the elbows
2: (laughs) Yes, which is <laughs> even I have further. to say is not going to survive. <laughs> there's no way that's going to work. Um, well, let's, perhaps uh, let's just move but, on because I'd
0: like to keep moving on just a little bit because we, we've barely even scratched the surface so far. Let's get on to the numbers a little bit. So, of course, yep, okay. you know the these there's various qualities of friendship. That's what you describe in your book. And there are these numbers that seem to be surprisingly robust. And I think it's important to note this because I think quite often when numbers are kind of banded around, especially in social sciences, it tends to be one or two studies and it sort of looked like that number. But these seem to be quite robust numbers. So tell us a little bit bit about the the hierarchical structure and what those numbers are.
2: Okay. So if, if you look at how often people... Talk or or, or or engage face to face with their friends and extended family. What you find is that you can kind of string everybody out from the person you devote most time to to the person you devote least time to, but actually it's not a sort of simple line of declining contact. It's rather bumpy, and those bumps occur in very specific places, which cause your social network, the sort of collection of friends and extended family you have, to look like a set of ripples on a pond, if you like, where a stone has been thrown If Think of yourself as the stone, right in the centre, you're surrounded by these ripples which go further and further out. And, and in fact, the analogy is quite good because the innermost ripples are usually a bit higher and the outermost ripples are sort of getting towards flat as the energy dissipates. So the, the, the innermost layer, you know, are, are the ones you devote most time to. In fact, you devote 40% of your total social effort to that inner core of just five people. And then beyond that, you sort of titrate your time according to the value of the relationships in many ways. And you you end up with these quite distinct layers. And the layers count cumulatively. So each layer includes the layer inside it. But there are, well, technically one and a half right in the center 5, 15, 50, 150, and then they extend beyond that. That 150 is your sort of natural social network, but they extend beyond to 500, 1500, 5000. That's the largest circle we know anything about, and it really seems to differentiate between completely anonymous people and people you've seen before somewhere or you recognize the photo of. So it's probably as much as we can actually cope with. But those layers, we pick them up not only in face-to-face interactions. We pick them up in telephone databases. If you look at how often people phone each other, you can see it in Facebook. If you look at the frequency with which people post to named individuals, we've even picked it up on Twitter. Heaven for I, I cannot imagine what that that means about the social life of <laughs> the Twitterati. These are the people following Twitter accounts, talking to each other within the Twitter environment, as it were, rather than the Twitter account owners. Pretty much anything you look at, if you look at the structure of organisations, the structure of natural groupings of humans, you see the same layers. They're, they're extremely robust. And I ha- hasten to say that, but for the sake of having some uh, a lot of statistical physicists as friends <laughs> and colleagues, I wouldn't Kind of really know about most of these because you know when you're analysing these huge telephone databases, you know where, where you, you might be dealing with like one data set we have nine billion phone calls <laughs> over the period of a year, or, or Facebook-sized data sets. You know, you need the technical and mathematical skills of uh, of statistical physicists really to do it. So, thanks be to physics; uh, they have a very important <laughs> role in my life.
0: <laughs> You're being very complimentary to physics this this evening, and I'm sure it's absolutely nothing to do with my my job. And um, so, uh, so on the topic, so one of the things we talk about in the book is that you know, as groups get bigger, it, it becomes you know, as tribes, perhaps a natural, you know, all the people who live in one place get bigger that they actually start to split. So you can't just have a group that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Eventually, it'll split into two groups. And even you say, you know, around the dinner table, if you have eight people, it, it tends to split into two groups. And I was just curious about. There's a lot of, you know, especially at the moment, there's a lot of what what feels like tribalism to me in society. There's a lot of us and them. You're you're our lot or you're their lot. And a lot of people, and I have to confess, I'm one of them. Would just wouldn't it be nice if everyone just stopped being in a tribe and just all got on? Is that is my nice little idea of everyone just. Not belonging to a very strong bonded social group and just you know accepting people is that is that a pipe dream? Are we are we are we sort of you know programmed that there has to be an us and a them at some point? Because if you've got people in your social group, by definition, there are people who are outside it.
2: Sure, I, the answer is I think we're going to have to find a solution of that kind if if we're all going to keep going. The problem really goes back to the fact that the way our psychology is designed is for very, very small-scale societies. So this is the societies we've lived in for the last uh, probably at least two million years in, in, in terms of these large-scale, relatively large-scale by primate standards, let's say, societies. The way we, historically we have seem to have sort of handled that is, is really is by setting up us-versus-them effects. And that's possibly because a lot of the drivers from an evolutionary point of view for having social groups is really predation and raiding so primates in general the reason they live in groups is is to uh, prevent them uh, you know keep keep predators away basically but humans and to some extent chimpanzees as well but also you know the other primates to a rather lesser extent probably, face this problem of of raiding by neighbouring groups who, who, who are ever coming and nicking your beautiful apples off your apple tree, as it, as it were. So, you know, those groups have essentially been protection against outside threats and therefore they've kind of inbuilt into them as this us and them thing. Now, that said, come eight or 10,000 years ago, these hunter-gatherer groups who, who normally live scattered around the environment – decided it would be a very good idea to settle in in, in in villages and things like that. This is the Neolithic Revolution when we discovered agriculture and and, and how to build stone houses and all these kind of things. Uh, the problem with that is you then had everybody crowded together, and particularly once villages became towns and you perhaps had several thousand people living together. You, you know, just the it's a sort of generic mammalian problem, well, birds probably suffer from it too, You know, you keep bumping into people all the time and it just gets irritating. So, you know, little sort of fights develop and things like that. So you have to have some mechanism to hold the lid on that or people had to find some mechanism to hold the lid on that. And what seems to have happened in the Neolithic? So we're only talking about the last eight or 10,000 years at most. This is history, basically. This is not sort of evolution in the longer term. This is just history. Is, is we've found ways of sort of solving that problem. And, and what that solution has come down to is using some of the mechanisms we use for building friendships to create mega groups. So we create friendships partly, obviously, through all this grooming stuff, but we also do it at a cognitive level, a psychological level, whereby we look for people who are rather similar to us, the so called homophily effect which is why we get these echo chamber effects. And, and, and we tend to like people and spend, want to spend most time with people who are similar to us on a whole tranche of, in particular, cultural dimensions, which we call the seven pillars of friendship. And these are things like shared interests and you know, shared moral views and sh- shared sense of humour, shared musical tastes and so on and so forth. And it turns out that we're very good at building kind of mega communities out of one single dimension. So normally, with your nearest and dearest, you'd perhaps share six or seven of these seven pillars uh, with them. So if you like think of them as sort of a, a supermarket barcode of your kind of interests in life and, and so on, on on your forehead... Or except that you speak them, obviously. But uh, you know, sort of when you get down to the the nether reason regions of your social network, you might only share one or two. But being able to take one of those as the basis for creating friendships with what amount of friendships with strangers seems to be a skill that we've managed to develop quite effectively so this is the thing
0: where you know if someone supports the same football te- football team or they play the yeah. same sport or it's that sort yeah. of thing that that is enough that yes. we we're, we're already sort of automatically yep. on the same side we've we've got a shortcut. Yep.
2: Absolutely and it, that's exactly what it is it's a shortcut through get having to get to know them better. Paradoxically though the one thing that seems to be particularly good at sort of creating a sense of bondedness with a complete stranger is your musical tastes. If they like the same music as you, boy, you're onto something good here. So, so, I'm rather worried know, not. I'm going to go around and check, check
0: around all my close friends to see if they share. I don't actually know for some of them whether they share my taste in music. But just before we get to the questions, I've got one other question for you, Robin, which is, which is about the effect of gender. So you talk quite a lot later in the book about uh, gender in the you know, friendships in the context of gender, both uh, romantic relationships and platonic friendships. I have to mm-hmm. say, you don't seem to have a lot of truck with the difference between nurture and nature, the the effect of nurture and nature on these friendships. You you fall quite heavily on the, the nature side of why men and women might behave in these ways. I, I was very curious about that. How, how much does nurture have a role in these friendships? Like, you know, the, the gender relationships, what evidence is there that... The you know, these gendered behaviors, these I mean, they're stereotypes almost in our society. How much is it a learned behavior and how much is it innate?
2: I think you have to, I mean, there is no such thing as anything that's wholly uh, innate and wholly learned in the biological world. You know, the biological world is, is a very intricate interaction between these two components, as it were. That said, of course, the, if you like. Uh, the proportions are going to vary and they'll vary for different things. I mean, there are some things over which we have no environmental control at all. And that, for example, is uh, the classic one would be you, the colour of your eyes. You either have the gene for blue eyes or you have the gene for brown eyes. And effectively, that's that. The more social it gets, the more scope and in, there is for lo- learning and the more important learning actually is. So, you know, the, the, this is very complex social world in which we live simply couldn't be regulated by wholly genetically determined behavior. It's, it's far too complex and, and dynamic. It's just constantly changing. So we have to learn those skills. And it takes us probably 25 years, the first 25 years of life, to really learn the skills uh, for handling the social world to adult standards, if you like. Now, that said, that learning is operating on a kind of template which is set up by the genes. And that's where these differences between the two sexes come into play. They really have much to do with the style and nature uh, of friendships. Women's friendships seem to be much more intimate. And this is not just my uh, work uh, that we've come up against this. You know, most of the people that work on friendship just hit their heads straight into it the moment they they start uh, observing friendship really you also see the exactly the same differences between the sexes in in all the higher primates the monkeys and and the apes it seems to be very very deeply embedded and, but but the difference is kind of in the kind of intensity of relationships so uh, at some level women have much more intense relationships than, than men do men men's friendships seem to be rather casual uh, and this affects the structure of their social networks in quite important ways and and a lot of those components you can track right the way through life you can right the way from age five to age eighty five you see exactly the same patterns in in who people are fre- friends with it just doesn 't change so you know the, the it 's not so much that there is a kind of enormous rift, as it were, but the 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 kind of fundamental underpinnings that the the template on which the social world is based is partitioned quite radically in these two ways. And that's primarily because the two sexes have different reproductive objectives. That's in term, evolutionary terms, that's really what it comes down to. And you can see that being played out all the way through the mammals and the birds and, and practically everybody else as well.
0: Well, let's move on to some questions from the audience who have been uh, very active. On, we've got lots of questions, but audience, keep asking your questions. So just to pick up on that last point or to follow on from it, there's one here. Do you think society values romantic relationships more than friendships? And perhaps by implication, should it?
2: <laughs> I think the answer is they're both necessary uh, and they're very different. I mean, they clearly... they. You know, do different jobs, if you like, in the, in in the generality of the, uh, the, our biology, but also they are underpinned by somewhat different psychologies and, uh, and uh, motivations, which create these much more intense romantic relationships. And clearly, you know, sex is a is a a, a major component of that because sex is very bonding. So it, you know, aside from its obvious reproductive function, sex itself triggers a lot of the endorphin systems, as well as other neuropeptides in the brain, which are, create these very, very intense bonds. I don't think there's anything that comes close to that, short of the mother baby relationship and and, and it, that really does seem to be in a different league to the father baby relationship. It's much much more intense and intimate. I now, think people.
0: The, I think there is evidence on that changing recently, right? I definitely see can, you that, know all these dads who are suddenly able to stay at home are finding that they can have a different relationship with their children.
2: They, they can. They can, but it's not the same quality of relationship. I mean, it really is very different. And I think the problem is the two sexes do not know what it's actually like to be the other sex it's actually quite you know it doesn't very often happen if you like that you can you can actually get inside other people's minds hard enough getting inside you know uh, you know uh, the mind of somebody who who who's sort of in your little cluster as it were never mind getting inside the 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 mind of of the two sexes but the 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 Key really is is how romantic relationships differ from close friendships. Now you get a phenomenon in in women in general called a best friend forever, which in many ways parallels that kind of intense intimacy, but without the sex sexual component to it. And it, there is no strong evidence to suggest that that happens in men. You can ask a bloke, you know, do you have a best friend? You'll go, oh yeah, it's Pete. But if Pete moves away. You know it's out of sight out of mind most of the time. Well, one day if I'm up there, I'll drop in and say hello. What I'll do is simply find somebody else to go and do whatever the activity that he used to do with Pete and this is because the underpinnings of how relationships are built are different between the two sexes. It really does depend crucially on the conversation in women, whereas conversation has zero effect, absolutely zero effect on the quality and and the future stability. Of men, men's relationships. What's important is is doing stuff together, is doing an activity. It's much more act, activity based, as it were, in the case of men. Uh, much, well, I'm sh- m- much I'm more sure conversation I... based in in women.
0: I'm sure. I'm sure there'll be more questions on that. But in the meantime, just picking up on the point you said there, actually, about the uh, the mother baby or father baby relationship, can or should parents and children be friends with each other? That's next on our <laughs> question list. <laughs>
2: It sounds like a loaded <laughs> that, that, question to me, but that's, do your best. <laughs> That—that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question That's the uh, uh, $64,000 question that's been asked since time immemorial, I should say. Uh, the answer is, of course, they can do. And sometimes they are. I mean, you often hear somebody saying, you know, my mum or maybe my dad is my best friend. Uh, and that's perfectly feasible because you can have a particularly close relationship with, with, with a parent. Or, or an offspring, and they can be in your kind of inner core of five. But they're no more likely to be best friends, I think, than any kind of other random person that you might spend time with, in the sense that um, their position on the seven pillars of friendship may actually be somewhat different to yours, and therefore you don't always hit it off with them. And one of the paradoxes that we found in our research is that people are surprisingly often likely to have catastrophic breakdowns of relationships with close family members, parents parents with offspring, offspring with their siblings, which is kind of worrying in a way because, you know, these are the one group of people who are going to drop everything to come to your aid In time of need, you know, I mean, they are the cavalry that are going to come over the hill. Nobody else is going to be willing to put themselves out. So, you know, you you really don't want not to have a reasonable working relationship with them, a reasonable friendship, as it were, because... The the cost to you in the long run is is going to be very high, and yet
0: well, that's actually oh well, that actually takes us to the next question very nicely. Sorry to interrupt. We've got a lot of questions, um, the audience keep asking. So the next question for you is why do friendships end?
2: <laughs> yes, uh, usually it's a breakdown of trust, and and here is the problem with close relationships both very close friendships, romantic relationships, and very close family relationships, because what seems to happen is we trade on the relationship rather a lot after a while. It, it, you know, we sort of expect them to do things. So, uh, And that's because we're very forgiving of those relationships. You know, so, you know, if, if I stand you up, having invited you out for a drink, if and when we can ever get to the pubs again, you know, you probably just go off. Oh, goodness sakes, I'm not. I'm not even going to contact uh, contact him again. You know, it's not worth it. And and the cost to you is 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 small. With close family relationships, we tend to be much more forgiving and say, oh, well never mind. You know, we'll we'll find another time. Now the problem is if those little breaches of trust keep happening, it. it builds up and builds up and builds up to the point where it just collapses catastrophically. And those relationships, breakdowns, are extremely difficult to repair. This is where you get deathbed reconciliations, the last opportunities, as it were. And it seems to happen surprisingly often. So in the end, it's all about sort of uh, people just trading too much on the generosity of, of the partner, Things like what becomes important is things like stealing money or or or, or um, you know taking things from uh, a family member or a friend um, that that they value and, and and those primarily those kinds of things, which are you know major breaches of trust and effect.
1: That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com squared. That's NetSuite.com squared. NetSuite.com squared. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up life can be pretty stressful so it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash intelligence.
0: So next up, Robin, possibly especially relevant this year, are there any substitutes for physical touch in, these, in building friendships and are there other possibilities? Can, can we replace physical touch?
2: Ah, well, now this is, this is where we get into how we've managed to get over the limitations of grooming because grooming, as I was explaining earlier, being so intimate places a really tight limit on the number of people you can go round grooming with. And that limit is at about 50 in, in monkeys and apes, and it probably is for about us too. And at, while, while our ancestors were trying to push our community sizes up towards the 150-ish that we have now, uh, in order to break through that glass ceiling at 50, they had to find other ways to trigger the bonding system that didn't involve physical touch and, and really what it boiled down to is being able to groom virtually with several individuals simultaneously. Now the way we've done that in successively seems to have been to exploit laughter which is extremely good at triggering the endorphin system, singing and dancing, the rituals of religion are extremely good although they often involve things like, like singing and, and, and dancing and so on, eating socially together so the actual Consumption of food and particularly spicy foods trigger the endorphin system. Drinking alcohol together or, or perhaps other kind of um, spicy drinks, such as coffee, you know, which sort of give you a, a, a hit. We probably get an endorphin hit out of that. Telling emotionally charged stories. All these things are part of the everyday toolkit of conversation, if you like, and, and, and everyday relationships. And they all trigger the endorphin system, they all bond people. So we've we've had people watch a sort of extremely tragic film, you know, almost Shakespearean tragedy film, and uh, measured both their endorphin release as a consequence of watching this film, and their bonding to an audience of strangers. And you can just see their increase in the sense of fellow feeling that they have with the other people they do it with. So we can do all these things without having to touch people. And of course, we do them you know every day in our normal relationships and conveniently we can do quite a lot of these online at least to some extent I mean I I was
0: just going to say you've basically listed all the things we're not allowed to do no social eating no dancing together specifically no singing you can basically go down the list and yes this yes
2: this is why I say said at the beginning that um, you know lockdown wasn't very good for you but there you know we don't have a choice. I mean, that, that that's how life is, as they say at the moment. But but the point is that most of those you can kind of have a go at online. I grant you that, that dancing probably doesn't work on Zoom. Uh, but, you know, if you've got a good person, you know, a sort of Gareth Malone, you know that probably works better than anything else, and of course, what that's what a lot of choirs have done. They've just gone and done it all on Zoom. They get the same cake. You can have sort of people have meals together, obviously, and they'll have a drink together on Zoom. I'm still kind of not hundred percent convinced that it's as good as being able to sit across the table and stare into the whites of somebody's eyes to do it. I was uh, completely
0: so. mystified by that. I did not understand when everyone's like, oh we'll have dinner together on Zoom. It's like, why not just have a chat? <laughs> have your dinner yes. beforehand and yeah. then have a chat. But perhaps in this context maybe there is some some sense to it.
2: Well, yes I, I mean I think it sort of works, but I, I don't I just don't think it 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 works in the same league as being able to, you know, reach across the table and, and pat somebody on the shoulder. You can't you, share, that's can right. you can't share. And you can't yeah. share, you know, the sort of the platters, I say.
0: <laughs> well, let's move on. So we've got another question here from Albert. So this is a good one and you do address it in the book, Albert wants to know about the correlation between age and the ability to form friendships. And what, you know, why, why is there a, a connection between age and new friendships? And he also, I assume it's he, says at the end, I've personally found there to be a negative correlation, <laughs> um, which is <laughs> diplomatic, I guess.
2: Yes, well, I was getting very close to home. <laughs> so what happens as um, we age? Go on. Yes, yes. So actually, you can think of this really as a sort of art. Uh, that you start out at birth and, and it's an arc which involves these circles so we do seem to acquire the circles of friendship as complete circles as it were over time and correspondingly we lose them as we age but the, but the arc looks something like this you start out with as that inner a, in a core of about one and a half, where obviously your parents as it were um by about five you can sort of reach the, the, the five threshold. And then as you age, you can sort of accrete the various layers as your social and cognitive skills are developing and you can handle them. Then what seems to happen is in the late teenage, early 20s, you kind of overshoot, as it were, they they commonly get up to about, in terms of face-to-face and, and meaningful friendships, round about 200, 250 people. And then it's sort of Uh, By the 30s, it will cut down and drop to about 150, which is the sort of obviously there's very individuals vary around these numbers. But these are the average numbers Uh, from about the 30s through to perhaps the, the late 60s. It's very stable at about 150. And then you go into this sort of period of terminal, I'm afraid, decline from perhaps 65, 70 onwards, where you gradually lose the layers and end up, if you live long enough, back at one and a half again. Now, that's a consequence at that end of losing people in in, in your sort of layers, dying or maybe even moving away or becoming unavailable for other reasons. And if you were in your 20-somethings or teenager, if somebody moved away like that, you would simply replace them with Somebody else. You you would go to the usual venues that that where you meet people, and you, and you would find somebody else to add in and replace the missing person. I think what happens when you get to at least the general sense in the literature is once because we've only done a small amount on, on 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 this aspect of it. Once you get to the older age, you just no longer have the motivation and the energy to get up and go to places where you're going to meet new people to fill it, and also you're kind of not sure what people talk about anymore, you know, sort of if they're younger than you or, or, or complete strangers, you sort of built up this cozy little world, which has been very stable in the latter decades of your life. And and, and you're kind of embedded so much within that, you, you're probably less well engaged with the wider community than than you would be when you're younger. So you kind of don't you're not sure about going to you know, clubs or whatever where you would sort of stick out like a sore thumb anyway and be... You don't know how to ask, a, invite a conversation. What kind of conversation do you have? What do you want to talk about? So it's <laughs> so not you've necessarily got all these... that
0: you can't form friendships. It's more that the, it's you know, just... there are fewer opportunities yeah. and, you're, yeah. and you're possibly a bit fussier about. I mean, that, that's, that's anecdotal entirely, but I think people spot what they want in a friend
2: yeah. quite quickly. Well, when they're well, this is Yeah, well, I think this is what happens in this sort of overshoot in, in the late teens, early 20s, is that we kind of look at it as younger people being careful shoppers. You know, they're checking around all the supermarkets to see what's available out there in terms of the possibilities for finding good friends and romantic partners and and all that kind of thing. And, that, uh, you know, once they've had a look at what the market looks like, then they start to narrow down in their 30s. Of course, the other big thing that uh, rather forces this um, Narrowing down is if you reproduce. Uh, And as all those who have um, young children will remember, you know, babies and social life on the whole, (laughs) (laughs) utterly incompatible. (laughs) It takes a long time to emerge from it.
0: Let's move on to a question that follows on, It's an interesting one. So there's no name attached to it. But if, if men's friendships are largely activity based and women's friendships are largely conversation based, can men and women truly be friends if the differences are so stark? And I have to say here that I've, some of my best friends are male and uh-huh. I've never noticed that. But maybe I, that's obviously one small data point. So how does this work? If the If the friendships work in different ways, how can they be friends?
2: A, a, a lot of that will depend on the particular personalities and psychological styles of the individuals concerned. So, you know, obviously, you know, uh, uh, men and women are not two completely different kinds; they overlap an enormous amount. So, it's a bit like stature. On average, men are taller than women, but you know, not not all men are taller than all women by a, a, a long way. So, it's the same with all these personality things. Now, it's personality kind of uh, and and the seven pillars and these other things which tend to be important, so one one where area where that 's reflected is in women 's best friends forever about eighty it certainly in our sample anyway eighty five percent of women 's best friends forever will be another uh, woman right it 's the best girlfriend, but about fifteen percent will be male, and as far as we know, they kind of work all right. There is another aspect to this, and this co- comes back to the greater social skills and cognitive social skills of women and it's reflected very nicely in what happens in conversations so if you look and again you know this is stuff from social linguists from the 70s and 80s when they worked all this out if you look at men's and women's conversations they are completely different in the way they're structured so women's conversations have a lot of what are called back channels haha's uh-huh, oh yeses i know what you mean and what women will very often do is finish the sentence with the speaker so the last clause we actually did it earlier this evening (laughs) we'll we we will i know what you're going to say and i say it with you and that's kind of very reinforcing and so you have this kind of collaborative communal sort of aspect to it you never find either of these in men's conversations They're extremely rare and in general men regard um, back channel comments and uh, finishing the sentence together is rude and intrusive and they don't like it. So the other question is... I'm well, going to start got, asking them now. <laughs> if you've got two different conversational styles, how on earth do men and women get together? So we were puzzled by this, so we went out and watched and listened to what happened to natural couples sitting in, in, in cafes and places. And it is very, very obvious. is What the women do is adapt their conversational style to the men. The men just carry on. I'm afraid to say, it's a terrible reflection on men, but that's how it actually works. And that's why, you know, all these uh, relationships between the sexes work as well as they do, because women are much more skilled at it. And also, they seem to be much more focused on what it is they want to do. So they seem to make a decision much earlier than men do about prospective romantic partner. see this in phone calls, uh, databases, it's really quite start there uh they, they they will be just calling and calling and calling and, and you know i'm here i 'm here, I'm here, and eventually the guy wakes up and goes, Oh really <laughs> uh, and it all takes off but but it it's it's the kind of i mean this is all back to the kind of difference in social style that that you seem to have between men and women on average as it were but it's not to say that at, around the edges of course you you've got men who are who are more feminized in that sense or or women who are more masculinized in in their social styles you know and to some extent you know those those where they meet will probably make it a lot easier to well know. There's, but, a, there's a question you know, here
0: that follows on and actually it does come right back to the heart of the nature versus nurture thing i think and in a really interesting way which is it says there's a, uh, there's no name on this one but some people Maybe men, it says, question mark, seem to need fewer close friends than women, as you said, but have more extensive, more transactional professional networks, perhaps supported by platforms like LinkedIn. So what is the difference when it comes to these connections between professional connections where men are, you know, can be very effective networkers and they're absolutely, you know, they're on top of that in a way Mm. that perhaps they're not in their own social lives. What? because this is a, that's a very transactional thing. So how does that work? Professional versus personal networks?
2: I, I, I think it goes back to the same difference. And I think the, uh, people are puzzled about why you should have these differences in social styles as well, and differences in the way the networks are structured. I mean, they have the same basic format, you can see the layers, but in the details, uh, men's and women's networks are quite different. And, and what it seems to go back to is that men live in a much more clubby sort of world. I wouldn't use the word gang here. I I, I think it's much more clubby in its atmosphere, whereas women have much more dyadic, focused relationships and friendships. Uh, And Um, by that
0: you mean one person to another person?
2: In an an intimacy sense, yes. And that's partly because conversations in the end work better between two people. You you cannot hold a conversation with more than four people at, at a time. There's an absolute upper limit on the size of conversation groups if it gets bigger than four, if you know, if it get if, if a fifth person joins you know within a minute it'll be two conversations this is so like clockwork it's amazing um uh, you can see it happening before you if you you know in a pub or well pubs are a bit noisy usually but you know in a reception or something like that you can just see it see it see this effect happening so you can't have more than four people in a conversation and probably most will be just two people or maybe three people. So women t- are kind of much more based around these kind of short short term in the sense of uh, through the course of an evening, one-to-one kind of interactions, whereas guys will sort of, some of them may hold forth, I say no more. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> I
0: hadn't noticed <laughs> at all.
2: No, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I spent but... some of them
0: will hold forth to people like me on the subject of my own expertise it's fascinating anyway so final question before we run out of time here so you mentioned the seven pillars of friendship these things like shared values and shared interest and that kind of thing which which can bind people together is there a hierarchy and and if there is is it does it depend on your culture
2: no because the, the at least at one level the seven pillars of friendship seem to be what economists would call substitutable. In other words, a three-pillar friendship can have any three pillars, and it will be just as good as a, a three-pillar three friendship with a completely different set of three pillars. Because what these are really is about shared culture primarily. So it's, it's you know, one of the pillars is speaking the same language, preferably speaking the same dialect. And the moment you open your mouth, a native speaker of a language knows exactly where you came from, right? And in the 70s, the social linguists told us you can place a person's birthplace to within 25 miles, roughly. I've um, had
0: personal experience of that, actually. I once <laughs> sat down at dinner when I was at university at Cambridge and the guy opposite me didn't speak for all of the starter and he looked up and he said the name of the town that I was born in from <laughs> my <laughs> accent. I was really impressed.
2: <laughs> no, anyway, it's right. And so, told, yes,
0: is, I believe that.
2: <laughs> I'm told by, you know, I, I wondered if it was just an English thing because, you know, we have so many regional dialects. So, and uh, uh, But I was told by French and German colleagues that no no you could do it do it there just as easily too so i think it's just you know it's the size of the language group that, 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 that we live in just marks you out and it marks you out as i know where you're from you're one of mine or you're not you know I, I don't have to know more than that but so do most of the pillars you know they're things we are socialized into it's it's what we learn you know as teenagers primarily it is to be a member of that community, the, how we do things, you know, and the, the right way to behave, um, and the kinds of things that are interesting. Of course, these change over the course of the lifetime uh, as you, you know, have opportunities to, to experience new things. But uh, nonetheless, it, it's still the case that, that, that the, the dimensions tie you down sort of to a particular small scale community.
0: Well, we are, we are out of time. So everyone, our, our particular little community we've formed this evening virtually that you and I never got to see, but they got to see us, I guess, <laughs> probably doesn't count because there was no, um, no shared eating or feasting or, uh, dancing. But anyway, so to the audience who joined us virtually, thank you very much. Thank you, of course, to Robin for joining us this evening and to yeah. Intelligence Squared.